Now we have in chapter 21 something that I think is quite interesting. It has to do with murder. And it's a very interesting thing. If one be found slain in the land, and this is verse 1, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure under the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take a heifer which hath not been wrought with, and which hath not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. Now, this was to be an offering for the city that the dead man was found nearest. Here's a man that obviously has been murdered, and his body is found. They measure it, find out what city he's closest to. And that city is held responsible for that man. May not be. It was slain in the city. That is true. But that city is held responsible. And here's what they were to do. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by thy word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charges, and the blood shall be forgiven them." So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is without doubt a very wonderful law and a very wonderful arrangement, and it reveals a great basic truth here. And that great basic truth is this, that every community, every city, you and I bear a responsibility in the city that we live in. So that actually when crime takes place in that city, we have a certain responsibility. That's my reason for believing today that ultimately there will have to be a demand made by citizens, concerned citizens today, to demand that law be enforced today to get rid of the crimes that are taking place. Because God holds a community responsible. But this man's been found there. But wait just a minute. This lawgiver in this city says, I'm not guilty. I had nothing to do with that murder at all. All right, he is responsible. But therefore he shall come and ask for forgiveness, and it shall be forgiven him. I wonder if today that even if there's any suggestion anywhere that America should ask God for forgiveness for our many crimes and the many things that are happening in this land of ours. It's one thing to say, oh, isn't it terrible? Oh, isn't it awful? Another thing to go to God and say, oh, God, forgive us as a nation. Forgive us our sins today. Now, this also has another meaning here, and that meaning is just simply this. Christ was murdered. <laughs> yes, he was. But his death could save his murderers. And I think that centurion that had charge of his death is one of them. Then you have a remarkable law here that concerns the prodigal son. What should have happened to the prodigal son when he came home? Let's read and see. According to the law, and our Lord there that day, he shocked the crowd that listened to him when he gave the parable of the prodigal son. Listen to it under law. Verse 18, If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they've chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, 
bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He'll not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. All the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Will you notice, this is the law concerning the prodigal son. You can't imagine what a shock it was when our Lord gave the parable and that boy came home and that father went out to meet him. Why, immediately the crowd would say, well, that boy's going to be stoned to death. He's getting what's coming to him. Well, that father could say to his servants, go get a switch. Go get a hickory limb and bring it here. I'm going to whip this boy in an inch of his life. He has spent my money. He's disgraced my name. And according to the law, he'd had a right to do that. But what did he say? Why, he put his arms around the boy. He said, my boy was lost. He's come home. Friends, aren't you glad it's not under law today? <laughs> when we came to God, if we'd have got justice, this is what we would have got. But we didn't. There was mercy there for us. And how wonderful and merciful God is to accept us and receive us. Verse 22. And I'd like to begin there today because that's a very important statement. And I'm reading them now. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now this seems, I'm sure, to many of you to be a very strange law, especially in view of the fact that what we have here is a form of capital punishment that Israel did not apparently use. And that was, they stoned. Here it's hanging. And what does it mean? Well, it means simply this. If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. In other words, after He's been stoned to death. He's to be hanged on a tree. Now, this applied to criminals of the worst type. And they were put on display there to let it be seen that they had died for a terrible crime, and it would be a warning to others, you see, in the nation not to commit that crime but they were to be taken down from that tree before nightfall and buried. And the reason for that, of course, was that they were cursed of God. And cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, we're told here. And this was to be done. Now, I am of the opinion that little did Moses realize, and certainly the children of Israel did not realize the full significance of that, now, when you come to Galatians 3.13, Paul picks up that statement in the law. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And that means cursed of God is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, this is a remarkable statement. You see, by the time you come to the Lord Jesus' day, he was delivered into the hands of the Romans. They were in control of the land, and therefore the extreme penalty, the death penalty, could only be given by Rome. And our Lord was crucified on a Roman cross, because after all, Rome gave the decision to crucify him. They had to, and he was put on a tree. Now, Paul picks that verse up, and he says that when he was hanging there on a tree, he was taking our sins, and cursed of God was his condition. 
Because what has he done? He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from the curse of sin. He's redeemed us from the penalty of sin. And he's brought our pardon. Why? Because he's been made a curse for us. And when you see him hanging on the tree, and I get a little weary of these people trying to decide whether the Romans were to blame for his death or Israel was to blame for his death. May I say it to you? You were responsible for his death, and I was responsible for his death. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, and he hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, because we were bruised by the fall and cursed by the law. But Christ hath redeemed us once and for all. This is the thing that he did for us there upon the cross, and we are the ones responsible. Have you noted, friends, how many places the book of Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament? Now, let me just pause to say this. This is the reason that we're teaching all of the Bible, all 66 books, Now, if God had only wanted to give the Sermon on the Mount, that would have been it. If he'd only wanted to give John 3.16, that would have been it. If he'd only wanted to give John 14 and 1 Corinthians 13, that would have been it. But friends, he just happened to give 66 books. And every one of them is important. Now, even a book like Deuteronomy is important. It would be difficult to understand a great deal of the New Testament if you did not understand something about Deuteronomy. Now, that's the reason we're spending time with it, and there's such tremendous spiritual lessons here, and I'm rejoicing in the reaction so many are giving to us. Now we come to another division here In the book of Deuteronomy, we have regulations for domestic and personal relations. You see, many of these laws had to do with the nation, given to the nation. Now, he gets right down, shall I say, to the nitty-gritty, where people live and move and have their being. And we have now domestic and personal relations. Now, in chapter 22, we have miscellaneous laws concerning brother relationships Dress, building code, planting seed, and marriage. Can you imagine all of that chucked in this one chapter here? Now, will you notice that? It says here, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox, or his sheep go astray, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother." And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, then thou shalt bring it unto thine own house. It shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. Now, we've heard a great deal in our day about good neighbor policy. God had a good neighbor policy, and it was for his people in that day. We think that every now and then that we've come up with something new. I remember during the Roosevelt administration when he gave out the good neighbor policy, why all the pundits and reporters and writers, they came up and clapped their hands and said, this is brand new, isn't it wonderful? He's like a new Messiah. He's come up with something new. May I say to you, just happen to be as old as Moses And it's much older than Moses. It goes back to the very throne of God in eternity. And he's saying that you're to adopt a good neighbor policy. And this is the way that you're to exhibit it in a very real way. And he says here in verse 4, "...thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again." This is a good neighbor policy, you see. And this is something that, very frankly, is quite wonderful. It's wonderful beyond description, by the way, and something that we need to note here. I think probably I ought to call attention to something else. We've heard a great deal in our day about that which is known as 
a soul brother. You've heard about a soul brother. Well, this is it right here. This is a soul brother. It's your neighbor, and you're to help him. Now, will you notice verse 5? The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination under the Lord thy God. Now, I want to add this comment when we come to a verse like this. Somebody's going to say, well, we're not under law today. That's true. We're not under law. And I'm of the opinion that no one is certainly trying to put us back under law, and certainly a law like this. But let me be very candid, and you probably will think that I'm a square. I still believe that a woman looks better dressed as a woman, and a man looks better dressed as a man. I was driving up to San Francisco and we were back of a little Volkswagen. And I told my wife, I said, you know, that's funny. The wife is driving and the man's sitting next to her. And we were back of them, couldn't get around them, to tell the truth. They were driving pretty fast. And they came to a hill where they weren't doing so well going up it. When I went around, you know, I was wrong. <laughs> The man was driving, the woman sitting next to him. Believe me, the man looked like a woman, and the woman looked like a man. Now, I frankly don't see the benefit of that. I'm sure I'm a square. But I think a man ought to look like a man, and a woman ought to look like a woman. And that's what God is saying. God made them different. And we're living in a day when they're trying to look alike, trying to act alike. And we're having a great deal of trouble I think womanhood is paying an awful price for this today. They are demanding equal rights. They ought to forget it because they have more than equal rights. I no longer take off my hat when I get on an elevator. And I want you to know something. I don't let a woman go ahead of me when I'm driving. I don't give way to a woman anymore. They wanted equal rights, so they want equal rights. Why, they can have them. I personally would like to treat them like a woman because that's the means that you elevate them and that they have better than equal rights. That's what God's talking about here. Now notice his concern, and this is one of the most wonderful things. Verse 6, If a bird's nest chance to be before thee in the way in any tree are on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, thou shalt not take the dam with the young, but thou shalt in any wise let the dam go, and take the young to thee, that is, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days. Protecting the birds. God's concern for the birds. And you remember the Lord Jesus said that a sparrow doesn't fall but what he knows. Actually, the language there has this thought, that a sparrow falls in the lap of the Father, always. Just a bird, he takes concern of that. And the Lord Jesus said, if the heavenly Father has concern for a bird, well, he has a concern for you and knows about you. How wonderful that is. Now, we have some very interesting laws given here that have to do with actually the building code. When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. Now, suppose a man built a house, and he said, well, I don't have enough money to put a railing around the steps that lead up to it and around the roof. The roof, you see, in that day was the front porch, the patio, the lanai, whatever you want to call it. That's where the family went to sit in the cool of the evening. That's where they retired. They had no front porch. They had no patio in the rear. So it was up on the roof. Now, God says you're to protect that. You put a railing around it, protect the little children, <laughs> and protect folk at night. They might step off. We've just in recent years have had a building code that protects people, you know. God is not as much of an old-timer 
as a great many people seem to think he is. He had a concern. Think of that. God had a concern about the way you build your house, friends. He's interested in it. Why? Because he wants that home dedicated to him, and he wants it to be a safe place. Are children safe in your home? You have a railing around it? Do you protect them from the things of this world today? How many parents have seen the young man, the young woman? And I've talked with so many parents like this. They packed up and they went off and they don't even know where they are today, out with some hippie crowd living in one of these communals. How tragic it is in this hour in which we live to see that. The railing is not there today. It should be there. Now notice this. Here he says, verse 9, "...thou shalt not sow thy vineyard." with divers seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. No mixture of seeds, you see. And then verse 10, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Now, friends, this is to me, I think, a humorous thing that God's making here. I was over in that land. In fact, I've got a slide that I made. I don't know just where it is. But I took a picture of an Arab over there plowing with an ox and with an ass. They do it over there even today. God says, don't plow that way. Somebody says, well, what's wrong with that? Well, an ox is an ox and an ass is an ass. And they don't go together. They don't work together. They don't walk together. They are not alike. They're different, by the way. That's the reason that there's some folk ought not to get married. I've seen several marriages, in fact, quite a few, where it was the marriage of an ox and an ass. Some Christian girl married some unsaved fella, and that's what it is. That's the picture. Now, will you notice verse 11? Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts, as of woolen and linen together. Well, you know what happens. You wash the garment, and the wool will shrink up, and the linen will expand. And then what do you got? You got problems on your hands. Thou shalt make thee fringes upon the four corners of thy vesture, wherewith thou coverest thyself. And that generally was blue. It was blue on the high priest's garment. That means that that fringe down at the bottom that touches the earth is to have a heavenly color, by the way. And that's when heaven touches earth. And the child of God can get great spiritual lessons here. We need to be very careful about sowing these divers' seeds. There are those that tell me today that the thing to do is to go into the nightclubs and go with the world and drink cocktails with them, and that's the way you'll reach them. I have news for you. You won't reach them. I've never heard anybody being reached like that. If you know of somebody, let me know, because it would be the first one I've heard of. And then the garment here, the wool and the linen should not be mixed together. You can't mix with the world, friends. Just impossible. Then you have a law here that protected the innocent wife. It kept a wife from being falsely charged. If any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her and give occasion of speech against her, bring up an evil name upon her, and say, I took this woman when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city and the gate. In other words, this was a way to protect a wife from a godless husband, you see. And it was a way that we do not have today at all. God had an arrangement to protect a wife under these circumstances. But suppose a woman was guilty. Then we're told, verse 21, "...then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones." that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So shall thou put evil away from you. Now, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Now, don't go to the seventh of Romans, friends, and say that. Well, if a woman has a living spouse, 
They're not to marry. You see, that under the law, they wouldn't be living. The guilty one, whether it was a man or woman, was stoned to death. So under law, they wouldn't have. Now, they don't stone them to death here in Southern California. If they did, we couldn't have freeways because there'd be so many rock piles around where people have been stoned to death that you couldn't even make a freeway. You couldn't drive a car through Southern California. Well, we don't do that today. And therefore, don't take the seventh of Romans and attempt to say, well, if a woman has a living husband or a man has a living wife, he's not to marry. You're not stating it scripturally. You see, you should know this passage of Scripture that under the law they wouldn't be alive. Now, friends, as we come here to the 23rd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we're still in a very interesting area. We are here seeing regulations for domestic and personal relations. And actually, you could write over this chapter, the world, the flesh, and the devil, for I believe that these are the three that we contend with daily, in fact, hourly, every moment as Christians today. Now, here is something that, as we begin this chapter, we're living in a day when there's very plain language being used. In fact, I think vulgar language. But in the Bible, it's very strong language, and it's generally avoided. I do not intend to avoid it always. There are passages that I don't read, but here... There are great spiritual lessons that you cannot miss. Listen to this now. I begin chapter 23, verse 1. He that is wounded in the stones, or hath his privy member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, that's an unusual law, is it not? What is God trying to say? That God is condemning asceticism. Now, we have a real application for that in our day. During the Middle Ages, of course, men saw the corruption that was in Europe and in Asia and North Africa, and they turned from the things of the world, and they became ascetic. They retired to monasteries to get away from the world. And very candidly, Probably you couldn't blame them at that time for that. But that is an extreme that God warns against. And it's led in Protestant circles to that same type of legalism today. There are those that feel that if they are living a certain type of what they call a separated life, that they deny themselves so many things... And I've never found those folk being joyful people. Fact of the matter, I found some of them rather dangerous folk. They are very pious. They act very pious. They're always shocked if there's something that's to be quite worldly that's mentioned before them, or if a Christian does something that they think should not be done, they are easily shocked. But these people are very dangerous. I found out that they're the meanest gossips that you've ever met. And they may be very extreme in their separation, but they are pretty dangerous as far as gossip is concerned. And I'm not sure that their business relations are always honorable. I've had a very bitter experience in my own life with a little group like that. And I found them totally, absolutely, totally dishonest. And they are the most separated folk you've ever met in your life. God here warns against asceticism. That's why he's doing this. This individual shall not come into the congregation of the Lord. Don't think that God accepts that type of thing. Now, here's another verse, and it's strong language. I hope that you're able to take strong language these days. Verse 2, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. 
Now, what does that mean? That means simply this, that you have to be born again a child of God. There are a lot of folk running around today saying, I'm a child of the king, and they're not a child of the king. They're illegitimate. (laughs) The language that's used here is pretty strong, but that's what it says. God says, the man today that's religious and is not born again, that man is illegitimate. He's not my son at all. God makes that very clear. The Lord said to Nicodemus, he was a religious man, but he wasn't born again. (laughs) He wasn't really a child of God, but he was saying he was. He wore phylacteries. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the people, a spiritual ruler. And yet that man was illegitimate. (laughs) Our Lord says, you must be born again. Almost rudely interrupted him and told him that. Oh, there are a lot of folk today in our churches. I've been holding meetings for quite a few pastors over this country in all denominations and some that are not denominations. And a Baptist pastor told me back east, in fact, in the Middle West, I should say, He said to me, he says, you know, McGee, there are a lot of baptized pagans today that are hell-doomed sinners. (laughs) And they think because they've been baptized that they are a child of God. God says, my friend, that an illegitimate son's not going to heaven. (laughs) He shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. God says, I don't have children like that. All of mine are legitimate, and they must be born again. That's a good question, isn't it, to ask today of many of you folk. Have you been born again? Do you know Christ as your Savior? To as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the exousion power, to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than simply trust in him. Believe in his name. Now, let me ask you the question. I have a right to ask it because it's his question, not mine. Have you been born again? Are you a legitimate child of God? And my friend, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, now, I don't care how many ceremonies you've been through. I don't care how many churches you've joined. And I don't care about how religious you might be. You're not a child of the king. You're illegitimate. His word here is a good word, by the way, but I've only used it once. Now let me move on. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam the son of Beor, of Pethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Now, what we have here is false religion. You have the Ammonite and the Moabite, and today archaeologists discovered that in the land of the Ammonites and the Moabites, that they were pagan to the worst degree. They found a great many of the little images of Baal, one of the worst forms of paganism, false religion. This is the devil. And the devil is not to enter into the congregation of the Lord. And Ammonite or Moabites not to enter. Why? Because of the fact By their fruits ye shall know him. He had a false religion. And what did it cause him to do? Well, he met you not with bread and water. This is the evidence. Now, if you will notice, God said, though, to his people, verse 5, Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace, nor their prosperity, all thy days forever. Now, this seems harsh, but the thought is here that this linking up with false religion is one of the worst things in the world. It's false religion that has damned this world more than anything else. 
But the most damnable thing today is false religion. We like to condemn everything else, and yet if a church is on the boulevard with a high steeple and a nice-sounding bell, we say, my, that's a church. Well, that may be the very den of Satan, friends. It can be just that. And this is the thing that they are to beware of, not to come into the congregation of the Lord. Now, will you notice verse 7? Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he's thy brother. <laughs> Edom represents, as we saw back in Genesis, the flesh. The flesh. And you shall not abhor an Edomite. Why not abhor an Edomite? Now, you're to abhor an Ammonite and Moabite. Why not an Edomite? Well, he's your brother. Esau and Jacob were twins. And you and I today have an old nature, the flesh. And, you know, I've spent a great deal of time hating it and trying to walk on it and do all that sort of thing. That doesn't do a bit of good. You've got the old nature. And you're not to abhor it. There are certain things today that I'm afraid a great many of our highly spiritual folk, they forget about. For instance, I stop three times a day generally and satisfy the flesh. I sit down at the table and eat. That's the flesh. I'm not to abhor it. I'm not to mutilate my body because that won't do a bit of good at all. After all, the flesh is not the meat that's on the bones anyway. The flesh is that psychological part of us, that old nature. And that old nature is not to control us, but there's certain satisfactions. I think that there is a great deal to be said regarding culture, having a nice rose garden, and appreciating the things of nature and the sunshine and all of these things. I like to sit out in the warmth of the sunshine, don't you? I like to take a walk in the forest. May I say to you, don't abhor the flesh, but you're not to yield to it. The flesh, it's in rebellion against God, friends, but hating it is not going to get you anywhere at all. And then notice something else here. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he's thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian. Now, Egypt in Scripture represents the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we're told Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But again, let me say that that does not mean the beauties of nature. That does not mean that I can't have an automobile. I drive a Chevrolet myself. I've never wanted a better car than that. And I have a very wonderful Christian dealer in Southern California that always makes me special concession when I trade in. And that's the best car, I'll be honest with you. But that's a nice car. That's part of the world, <laughs> may I say to you. But I don't worship that old car, I'll tell you that. There are times I feel like kicking it. But nevertheless, it's part of the world, part of this that's around us today. And I don't want to fall in love with these things. But may I say, I don't want to despise them. I'm afraid that a great many folk get the viewpoint that the Puritans had. You know, the Puritans were extremists. Thank God for them. But I wouldn't want to live back in their days. I'll be honest with you, the blue laws that they had. But if you've got to choose between their blue laws and their blue noses and their blue socks, I would take that in preference to the new morality and the nudity that we have today, if I have to make a choice. I wish that I didn't have to choose either one. And so he says, Abhor not an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. And you and I are a stranger and a pilgrim down here in this world today. And I think that we are to recognize that we're passing through the world. Now, the children of Israel were never called upon to plant flowers in the wilderness. They were called upon to pass through it. I belong to no movement that's trying to straighten out the world. I'm just giving out the Word of God. I think that's my business. We need to have a proper relationship to the world and to the flesh and to the devil. 
but there's no compromise with the devil whatsoever. This is a remarkable chapter. Now, God tells them, because of these things, they are to have a clean camp. And the sanitary conditions were important. God told them about their sanitary conditions, what they were to do. That's an important thing. And it's been Christianity, by the way, friends, that has improved the sanitary conditions. Now, we hear today about pollution. Who polluted this universe? It wasn't Christians that did it. And it wasn't God that did it. He gave us clean streams, clean air, clean water, clean everything. It's man, sinful man, that's polluted this earth today. Now, if men were following God, then that's the best way to clean up this earth in which we're living today. Now, notice what he says, verse 14. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee, and turn away from thee. Now, God's interested in cleanliness, by the way. Who is it said? Was it Wesley said cleanliness is next to godliness? I think it's closer than that. I think it's part of godliness, by the way, to be clean. Clean in body, clean in environment. Clean in mind, clean in thought, clean in action. We're to be a holy people in this world today. Say, this is very practical, is it not? Now, he has something else to say here that gets right down to the nitty-gritty. Verse 17, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. There were very few harlots among the Israelites. A friend of mine told me when he was over there in this land today that at one of the hotels he was approached there in this matter. There were harlots, apparently. But God said among his people there's not to be a harlot or not to be a sodomite of the sons of Israel. And thou shalt not bring the hire of a harlot or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. This is tremendous, by the way. This is great. It is something that is very important for us to see today. God will not accept, nor does he want, any income that comes from that which is illegal, that which is immoral, and that which is wrong. Now, I'm going to say something that I know is not popular, but I want to say it. I do not believe that any Christian organization ought to receive anything from the liquor industry. And I thank God that two schools in this country several years ago turned down a gift from a large brewery, but a hospital accepted the gift that was sent to them. And a great many try to cover up with that by giving, as they say, to charity. Now we come to the 24th chapter, and in the 24th chapter, you have the Mosaic law of divorce. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, give it in her hand, send her out of his house. Or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that... She's defiled, for that's abomination before the Lord. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Somebody says, well, why was it put on that kind of basis? Well, because God doesn't agree to wife-swapping, by the way, which this would be if it was back and forth, you see. But somebody says, but this is very easy form of divorce, was it not? It sure was very easy. And you raise the question, well, why 
did Moses then do this? Why was this made like this? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear. They came to him with that question. Why did Moses then command to give her a writing of divorcement and to put her away? That's Matthew 19, 7. He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now he says, from now on, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another committeth adultery. In other words, unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. And of course, there's been some speculation about 1 Corinthians 7. And I'll have something to say about that when we get to it. I do not want to get into that now, but that probably opens up another reason, another basis for divorce. But now will you notice verse 5, "...when a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business. But he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken." In other words, you see, God was protecting the home, even in the time of war and the sacredness of the marriage vow. Now, these people got to the place where if a wife burnt the biscuits, why, she could be given a divorce. And that was not what God intended. And the Lord Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. You know, there are a great many things God permits, that it's his permissive will But that's all you can say. He permits it because of the hardness of our hearts. And I think that's true in many cases today of divorce. I think that's true today in many homes. And I think it's true today in the personal lives of many individuals. God's been merciful and gracious to us. But let's understand one thing. It's not his direct will. It's been his permissive will. And since it is... It will behoove some of the more spiritual brethren not to be so critical of these folk today. Verse 7, If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and making merchandise of him, selleth them, then that thief shall die. Thou shalt put evil away from you. God condemns slavery. There's no question about that. And then... He was taking care of the poor. Verse 19, When thou cuttest down thine harvest in the field, and hast forgot a sheath in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be left for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. God was taking care of these that were helpless, these less fortunate ones. God had a good poverty program. And the interesting thing is his work. We're going to see it a little bit later on, especially when we get to the little book of Ruth. Now, friends, we come today to the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy. And if you have your Bible handy, turn there, because this is a remarkable chapter also. And I say that about every chapter, because every chapter is remarkable. You have in this chapter the punishment of the guilty, and you have the law that protected widows, and you have punishment for crimes, and judgment of Amalek. This is quite good, by the way. Now, first of all, there were certain crimes, apparently, that arose through difficulties between individuals. I think that our legal nomenclature today call them misdemeanors. I think that's what they would be called. There would not be a serious crime that would merit life or death, but one that there should be punishment. And let me read. If there be a controversy between men, and they come under judgment that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile under thee. In fact, there'd be danger of him killing the man, of course, but forty would be the limit 
But it could be any number of stripes, one to forty. And I suppose that practically every number was used in their long history. I'm sure of that. This is a method of punishment that has gone entirely out of style. I have heard several outstanding Christian attorneys today. I listened to two or three of them talking some time ago, and they all agreed that today they could break up a great deal of this lawlessness if there was public flogging. That is, if a man was caught committing a certain crime today, he's not to be executed for it, but he should be punished and not put in an air-conditioned jail for a few days because, after all, he's a loafer to begin with, and the jail is just a cool place for him to loaf in our day. But if he was taken out and publicly flogged, these lawyers felt it would break up a great deal of crime. Well, at least God thought so, and that's the way he did it. And I think the answer to this type of thing is that there was not too much serious crime in Israel. They had a pretty low crime level, and not like it is today. Then he says, verse 4, "...thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn." I think that's a lovely thing. In other words... Here's an ox, and you've seen them in that land or pictures of them. I watched one over there for, oh, I don't know how long. It was an Arab, and the ox was going around. And do you know, he had his ox muzzled. God said, don't do that. The ox is treading out your corn. He's working. (laughs) Let him eat. God's concern is a very wonderful thing. And then another thing that makes it very interesting is that Paul reached in and lifted this verse out. What about this? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, he says, "...for it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen?" Then Paul goes on to make application. And you know what he does? He says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we've not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And you know how Paul used that? He used it like this, pay your preacher. The man that's ministering to you of spiritual things, then you in turn are to feed him with material things. That is the way Paul made application of this. Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And that's all I guess some of us are. I make a record here, a tape. I'm making one right now here in my study, and I'm looking at the tape. And you know what? It's just going round and round. I'm not going round and round. I guess some people think I do. But I'm just watching it go round and round. I feel just like an ox. And I'm treading out corn. I'm trying to, you know, tread out corn. And you know what God says? Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. That's a very interesting law, is it not? I'll let you make application of that, by the way. And now I move on to another one. And you can't make me believe that God does not have a sense of humor. He made a law here that honestly, it was a good law, and it worked effectively, and we're going to see it in the book of Ruth. But it's the way God took care of widows, and it's almost humorous. In fact, to me, it's very humorous. Let me read this, verse 5. If brethren dwell together... And one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother under her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead." that his name be not put out of Israel. Now, this was God's method of taking care 
of his people. In other words, he was protecting womanhood. Now, we hear a great deal about women's rights today. Well, God thought they had some rights also. Now, here is a man, and we need to get this right down and see it in its application in that land. Here is a man living in that land, and he dies. He's a farmer. Most of those people, they either were dealing in agriculture or they were dealing in animals. They were raising sheep or oxen. And suppose this man dies. He leaves a big farm, a lot of wheat, a lot of corn. And also, he has sheep and he has oxen. Now, that poor widow, she's not able to take care of all of that. Now, here's a man maybe from another tribe or even a man from outside, a foreigner who wants to marry her. But no, she's not permitted to marry outside. But she has a privilege that's quite unique for a widow. This is a case where the widow does the proposing. What she can do is to go and claim one of her husband's brothers. And if it's not a brother, a cousin. She can go to the nearest relative, or any one of them she wants to go to, and say, look, I've chosen you. And it's just the same as asking him to marry her. And that's what he'd have to do, by the way, or almost have to do. It'd be a disgrace to him if he didn't marry. Now, notice this, how it went into operation. Verse 7, And if the man like not to take his brother's wife. Now, here's a man that said, Look, I told my brother when he fell in love with this girl, because he's a sickly fellow, I said to him, I don't want you to marry her, because something happens to you, I don't want to marry her. Then what can the poor man do? Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He'll not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now, she can take him into court, you see. If he refuses, she just takes him right into court. And she tells it like it is. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her. Now, suppose when he's brought into court, he says, I don't like this at all. Now, notice the penalty. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. In other words, the man's disgraced for not performing that which he should according to the law and it reveals the fact that he is not being true to his brother or his family or his tribe or his nation and actually to his God. Man's disgrace. These women suffragettes years ago said the Bible's a man's book. My friend, it's a woman's book, I believe, actually more than a man's book. God's always protecting women and children. And here's the instance. Now, here is a widow and... This is the way God protects her. She's got a right to go to one of the brothers, anyone she wants to go to, or a cousin, or an uncle, anyone. Now, we're going to see that law in operation when we get to the book of Ruth, by the way, because it was used and used effectively in that book, by the way. Now, let me just give a, the illustration of how it must have worked. Here's a man that lives way up in the Ephraim country. He raises cattle. And he raises sheep, and he raises barley up there. He has a barley farm, and he has about four or five sons, fine boys. Now, one of these boys, one night, he gets the lantern down, and he lights it, and he starts down the road whistling. And believe me, the other brothers wonder where he's gone. He hadn't said anything about it. And so long about 11 o'clock that night, they hear him coming down the road. And you can see the light from the lantern. And he's whistling again. This time he's really whistling. And so he comes in, goes to bed, doesn't say a word to anybody. The brothers wonder. And so they forget it, though, because they think that's it. But the next night, he gets the lantern down again. And here he starts down the road again. And he's whistling. And when he comes home, why, he's still 
whistling. And they wonder, but he doesn't say anything to them. So the boys do some investigating and wonder about what's taking place. So the next night, here he goes again, and he starts off whistling. And long about 11 o'clock, or maybe later that night, he comes home, and he's not whistling, he's singing. He comes in, he goes to bed, doesn't say a word. So the next morning, they have a family huddle. And the brethren call him in and said, Look here, look here, Benjamin, where you been going at night? Oh, he said, Down the road. Well, they say, That's obvious. But where do you end up when you go down the road? Oh, he said, just going down the road. He doesn't give them much information, you see. But they've done a little investigate. And they said, now there's a new family down the road. Could it be that you have been going there? Oh, he said, it could be. Well, they said, we'd like to know. Have you been going down to visit this new family? Oh, he said, yes, I, to tell the truth, I have. He says, I believe in the good neighbor policy, and I've gone down to welcome them into our neighborhood. Well, they said, is it true that there is a daughter in that family? Oh, this boy says, yes, I, I think there is. Well, they said, is it possible you've been going down to see her? And he says, it's possible. Well, they said, have you been going to see that girl? And he said, well, if you want to put it like that, I have. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've seen the girl. Well, frankly, we don't care too much for her. And before you get any notions, you go to the doctor or the clinic and you have a physical test. We want to make sure you're in good health before you marry her because none of us want to marry her. And he says, well, if you really want to know the truth, I proposed to her tonight and she accepted me. And I want to tell you that they really then get right down to business because this is a family affair. You can see how that drew families together in Israel, could you not? This was God's way of actually drawing families very close together and also of protecting widows and actually protecting the land because it would stay in the same family, you see. This was God's method of protecting the land and widows and his people. And actually, was a very good law, by the way. Now you have here a list of punishment for certain crimes that are committed here when men strive together one with another and so on. And there would be a certain penalties exacted, actually certain amount of money paid in case a man was hurt in that kind of an altercation. Now you have here at verse 17 uh, another reminder of Amalek. And we've had Amalek before us now two or three times. You remember they attacked the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt? They attacked them when they came to Kadesh Barnea. They were nomads out on that desert. Now we have something concerning Amalek here. Notice verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way? When ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven." Thou shalt not forget it. Now, Amalek, as we have suggested before, way back in the book of Exodus, you'll recall that when they came out of Egypt, that at that time they were attacked by Amalek. And you remember Moses went to the top of the mountain. Aaron and Hur held up his hands in prayer to God. And when the hands were up, why, Joshua, who led the forces of Israel, he was the one who won. And when his hands were let down, they lost. Then the Lord says two things at that time which are quite interesting. He says, For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That is chapter 17, verse 14 in the book of Exodus. Amalek, as we suggested before, represents the flesh. 
God intends to eventually get rid of the flesh. The old nature can never enter heaven. You and I have an old nature that can never be obedient unto God. You probably have sensed that you have it. We're going to deal with it quite thoroughly when we get to the uh, epistle to the Romans. But this is the illustration of it. But as long as you're in this life, you'll never get rid of the flesh. For in that 17th chapter of Exodus, he says, in the last verse, verse 16, For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, we saw last time that the flesh is something you're not to despise. And you don't overcome the flesh by becoming ascetic or trying to beat it down or to become especially religious or pious and that type of thing. That won't get you anywhere at all. But there is a war going on in each one of us between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit warreth against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, and these are contrary. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Now, you can't overcome by fighting. The only way you can overcome is by the Spirit of God. And only the Spirit of God can produce the fruits of the Spirit in our lives today. It's a victory that can only come through the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. So that what you have here is the Lord again saying that he's going to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and you'll not forget it. And I thank God that he intends to get rid of the flesh someday.